Beautiful morning today. Glad we're uh, starting church off today on this beautiful weather. Uh, we got some things coming up. Um, Wednesday night, we have groups. Uh, the cool kids are going to be over at the Geary's, uh, the students, and then the um, older adults. Is it okay that I just called you an older adult? Is that okay? Oh, they're going to be at the Hards. That starts at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. And then uh, on November 22nd, this is in your talk notes. You might want to mark your calendars. We're actually going to have our... Uh, Sunday morning services out at the park, um, uh, and so we're going to be at the little amphitheater area, and so um, I think we're going to have breakfast burritos. Brandon's cooking them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, you always get to say I'm cooking stuff. So breakfast burritos, bring a blanket. might be a little chilly. I don't know, but we're going to worship out there. So uh, with that being said, if you will uh, get up, greet one another, give high fives, and uh, we will uh, get back to worshiping right after that. Ready, set, go.
this last song. Father, my prayers at this last song that you drop something in us. That right now, if we haven't set our heart right with you, that we would do so in this moment, right now. And we pray this prayer, God, that you would awaken your people, you would awaken your city, and we would understand the weight of that prayer. You would awaken our hearts, every heart right now. We ask that your revival happens in this land, in this city, in our hearts. change status quo, change apathy, change our hearts. We see your beauty in everything. It's crazy as things are right now. We'd see your beauty. Your beauty would break through. Destroy the chains. That we continually place over ourselves that you would break the stronghold. Strongholds would crumble just at the sound of your name. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
right now that you would come, you would awaken your people, you would awaken your city, you would pour it out. Father, we love you. We sing these prayers. We open up your word. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, both 
both areas. Uh, in fact, uh, it'll be really easy uh, to see the responses of some and uh, make the decision to uh, correct or ridicule or poke fun at. Uh, and, uh, and I believe that that does not show love in all ways. Uh, and if one of our core tenets here at Merge is that we would do everything in love, that we would be mindful uh, as we approach the election, that our love for Jesus uh, should be greater than our love for country. And so uh, I, I plead with you there uh, just for the sake of, I guess, really my own sanity uh, and, uh, and for the togetherness of the gospel. And so, uh, but as, as you go into to Exodus 16, uh, we, we've been walking for a few weeks now with the Israelites, and we picked up in their story where really there's a shift from uh, them coexisting in Egypt uh, to being underneath the oppression of the Egyptians. Remember, a, a new Pharaoh comes along, uh, and he does not uh, decide to honor uh, the relationship that the Israelites have with Egypt. He does not. It says that he does not remember uh, Joseph and the difference that Joseph made in their lives. And and as that's happening, he looks at the size of the Israelites who are fruitful and who are multiplying, and in his concern, he places them under slavery, and, and we picked up where the Israelites are crying out to God uh, for him to to rescue them, and, and we've been careful each of these weeks, we've been four weeks in now, um, but each of these weeks we've been careful to note that, that God is, is not only aware of their plight, uh, but he's attentive to it, uh, that he has made promises uh, to them before they even made it to Egypt about what will happen there. Uh, and then secondly, what he will do as he displays his glory over all things. And, and we walk with them because uh, what we get to do is we get to celebrate the greater things as, as we respond to what God has done for us in Jesus and how uh, the difference that he makes in our lives leads us to freedom, which is much greater than the attacks of, of the Egyptians. That, that in Jesus, we, we have a better promise uh, because he brings us into a better covenant with God, if you remember our time through the book of Hebrews. And, and now that's not to say uh, God was not doing all that he could to protect and provide for the Israelites because uh, uh, the, the story of Exodus is more than simply leaving Egypt and heading to the promised land. In fact, the Exodus is about the people of God learning how deeply God loves them, how deeply God cares for them, how intimate the relationship that he offers them. And, and now what we have is we've arrived in the wilderness. Uh, God is going to continue to love and he's going to continue to teach them how to walk in relationship with him, uh, but then also how to walk in relationship with, with each other. Uh, and so we're going to pick this up this morning uh, with the Israelites' journey, and, and again, in Exodus 16. Uh, and now where we left off seven days ago, we're going to jump in their story about two months. Uh, in fact, uh, on, the Israelites have now, they've fled Egypt. They've arrived on the far side of the, the Red Sea, and the Israelites celebrated their victory from Egypt and God's epic victory at the sea, and they were truly grateful for being delivered. Exodus 15 is an incredible song of praise. Uh, and, and yet no sooner had they finished singing this great song of, of victory, uh, they turned uh, from the sea and they faced their next, next obstacle, the wilderness. Uh, and, I, and I think it's fair uh, to, to place ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites with some grace towards them. Uh, in fact, imagine uh, looking with tired eyes and, and to see what they saw. Uh, they fled and they turn away from the sea and they see the barren wilderness as far as the eye could see. And now uh, the rest of their journey, in fact, um, with the exception of about two guys, uh, for the rest of their lives they will live in this wilderness under the desert sun and, and food and water at first are going to be scarce and, and their fears are going to be legitimate and they're going to be fierce. And, uh, and now God had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, but now the issue will be 
could he deliver them uh, from the wilderness? Because he's, he's promised them a land that is flowing with milk and with honey. And now as they look out before them, they don't see any of those things. And, and I think if, if we're offering them grace and we're putting ourselves in their shoes, we can ask this question, like, how many times have their faith been tested in just their current season? Because they haven't really advanced from the season, have they? They've been inside this season for, for quite some time. And first they were promised freedom, and then immediately they, they experienced their slavery worsening when, when Pharaoh withholds straw from the bricks. And, and then when, when freedom was finally in view, God leads them to an impassable Red Sea. And then, then God parted the waters only to lead them into a wilderness. And if, if we are only seeing these scenes from their account, then I believe we can begin to ask, how much can a human heart take? And now, what we're going to find out is that's exactly what they're asking. Uh, because as they look ahead, uh, they break out in, in this very biblical word, um, grumbling. Uh, and, and that's what becomes of them. And so let's pick it up in uh, verse 1 in chapter 16. It says, They set out from Elam, uh, Elam, sorry, uh, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, uh, which is between uh, Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So again, it's been two months. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, and again, this is just their common uh, whenever they want to complain, this, this, it's always the same message. Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, And so, so I said this a few weeks ago, and it remains true, that, that there's no people group that irritate me more in the Bible than the Israelites. Uh, because, because you read this account, and what I want to do is I want to yell into their story, why do you not see all that God has done for you? Why do you so quickly forget all that God has done for you? What is wrong with you? And so, so I say that, that they, they irritate me the most, but then again, at the very same time, I am most exposed by them because I think the Holy Spirit looks at me and my grumbling against God and says, why do you not see all that God has done for you? Why do you not see the ways that he is caring for you? Why do you so easily forget these things about the goodness and the mercy of your heavenly father? And so, so let's, let's pay attention because, because the, the ultimate argument here is, hey, I'm really hungry. And when I'm hungry, I need a Snickers, okay? That's, that's the biblical approach to Exodus 16. Let's go verse 4, and we're going to read just for a little bit, so buckle up. All right? Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, okay, I, okay, so let's go ahead and circle that, because that's going to be important. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. That's a good line to underline in your Bible. Every day that I may them whether they will walk in my law or not on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather daily and so verse six so moses and aaron said to all the people of israel at evening you shall know that it is it was the lord who brought you out of the land of egypt and in the morning you shall see the glory of the lord because he has heard your grumbling against the lord for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near uh, before the Lord, for he has heard 
you're grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumble. Is this a common theme? Hey, I've heard you. I've heard you. I hear you. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's, it's the bread that the Lord had given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall, take, you shall each take an omen according to the number of the persons that each of you has in, it, in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less, but, but when they measured it, pay attention here, when they measured it with an omer, uh, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no left. Each of them gathered, okay, what's, what happens? As much as he could eat. Okay, so, so they say, God, I'm hungry, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide for you. And not only am I going to provide for you, you're going to be stuffed. You're going to be stuffed. You're going to be full. And, and so despite their faithlessness, uh, despite their seeming ingratitude, God showers them with blessing and he promises this miraculous daily supply of, of meat and bread that and the bread they would call manna. And, and it wasn't because they deserved it, especially after this grumbling, but, but he, because he is a generous father and he cares for the needs of his children, even when they whine, and I think, I think while uh, their minds were obsessed with food, God had something bigger on his mind, in their hearts, that, that, that even as he provided graciously, he did so in a way to test their faith, to test their, their heart, whether they would walk in his law or not, and now and I think when we, when we get to that word law, I think it needs some some explaining because in our modern uh, as a modern reader the contemporary usage of it just kind of typically leads us to to thinking it's about a list of do's and don'ts will we do this or will we not do that and but but here it's, it's better to see that God was making their grumbling an occasion to reveal something about the kind of relationship that he wants to have with his people that he wants to bless them. He wants uh, them to respond with trust in his provision, receiving blessing on his terms, not on theirs. And, and so so uh, there's a commentator uh, that I read this week named Douglas Stewart, and he observes that, that it was not just a test to see if they could follow instructions, but it was a test to see if their hearts were inclined to be his covenant people. And so, so in this case, uh, uh, to walk in his law would have meant to trust him every day afresh, every single day that God that they knew that God would meet their their need for daily bread. And so, so what it, what is coming to the surface will be uh, whether they will follow him or whether they will just chase the bread. And so, so the first test of manna came with God's promise to provide enough bread each day for every man, woman, and child so that they could have their fill of it. That there was, uh, they were to gather a day's supply, right? A day's supply and to save none of it until morning. And, and sure enough, uh, when they gathered and they measured, it says that it was, it was enough. And so the question becomes, is enough enough? Right? Uh, and so, so could they trust that the same God who had kept his promise on a Monday, uh, that, he would that he would keep his promise on a Tuesday? Could they remember that this same God who kept his promise to deliver them from slavery could also provide their food each and every day? Or, or will they be tempted 
to hoard it to secure themselves against hunger. And now, would anybody like to take a bet on that? Because I will put all the money that I have in your wallet against all the money that you have in your wallet um, that it just won't work out well. So let's go. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one, okay, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But verse 20 happens, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. All right? It bred worms and stank. And, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. It melted. And so, so they hoarded. They hoarded. Apparently, we're not very far from, uh, they're not far from the American dream of bigger barns, right? That we believe that, that those things bring us security. And so we want more of it, and it becomes our protection because we think as long as we have, then, then we don't have to be without. And if we're not without, then we're successful. And so, so they hoard, and perhaps some of them uh, were kind of like their parents, Adam and Eve. Like, yeah, okay, did God really say that we couldn't keep just a little bit of it till morning? I mean, what what harm could come of that? And now that's the first test of manna. Will you just get today's supply? And then when we arrived. Uh, to the sixth day, uh, the second test of manna came with God's instruction that, that they were still to observe the Sabbath. They were um, the, the weekly day of rest devoted to the Lord. That, that the weekend manna gathering rules were a bit different. They say on the sixth day, uh, you were to gather two days worth because there would be none to gather on the seventh day. Okay? And which is incredible. Right? For God to say, hey, I'm going to provide food for you every single day. On the sixth day, um, you need to get double because when you wake up on Sunday, you're right, it's not going to be there. But it's okay because on Monday, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be more food. And so he tells them that, that, that on the seventh day, there's not going to be any food to gather. And so the question is, could they devote a day to the Lord? Could they trust him in a, for a day's rest? So would they, would they diligently gather two days' worth, trusting that the extra would keep for the Sabbath? Would anybody like to take odds on that bet? Okay? Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws. Now, he's not talking to Moses as much as he's talking to his people. Like, how, how long will it take before you trust me? Like, I told you. I didn't lie. I told you there wasn't going to be food out here today. And yet, you still came out here thinking that there was going to be food. I've provided all week long for you. I've given you, I've given you food. I've given you breath. I've given you protection. How long will it take? And, and I think if, if we interviewed one of those Israelites trying to gather just a little too much manna, I suppose they would say something like, I don't see why it's a big deal. I, I don't know why, um, why it's so wrong that I'm trying to provide for my family, why I'm trying to uh, keep them from starvation. Now remember, they're full. They each ate to their, their fill. And I think on, on one level, uh, that person could kind of be right. That, that God, never, God never condemns the Israelites for wanting bread. Never. In fact, uh, after all, He created people to want food when they get hungry. It's a perfectly natural desire. In fact, He led the bunch of them into a wilderness. So, so there's nothing wrong here with them wanting to eat. Uh, and there wasn't really anything wrong with them asking God, for food, but but here's the problem: the Israelites didn't just have a natural desire for food. They they wanted food, and they wanted it on their terms, and and they disbelieved that God would provide. And so so they they tried to take matters into their own hands. So they tried to on some days get too much, and on other on the day when there wasn't supposed to be any food, they walked in expecting to see 
food. And, and so, so being helpless in the wilderness and, and their only recourse seemed to be grumbling. And, and what's happening here, it's not about food, it's about their heart. And it's revealing that there's deeply something wrong about their hearts. And again, it's far than the, about the bread that God's test reveals there's truly significant sinfulness. And in that, I'll make, I'll make two observations. That first, their, their desire wasn't simply for, again, a daily fill of bread. They were, this was merely a thin cover over a bottomless pit of desire to have life on their terms. God, I'm hungry. I expect you to feed me. And I want you to do it whichever way I tell you to do it. Okay? Now, some of us, as we have children, we're like, oh, okay. So it's not just my kids. So, so they, they wanted bread, and they wanted it now. And, and gathering it a day at a time wasn't good enough. They wanted to stockpile. And, and so taking a break from gathering to give thanks on the seventh day, that wouldn't do either. They, they wanted more and more and more of every opportunity. And so, so the Bible gives us a word for an insatiable desire, uh, and it's, it's, it's lust. Now, now we typically think of lust in, uh, in, in usually connoted in, uh, I'm sorry, in, in sexual desire, but, but a lust can be really any sinfully excessive desire, any of them. And, so, and, and what happens is it's kind of like a poison ivy itch, right? The, the more you scratch it, it, it just wants to itch even more, and, and it's never satisfied, and it's never grateful. It only grows. And, and so, so without a biblical understanding of how sin corrupts good desires, the reasoning leads to one of two traps. Either, either we will fixate on desires that must be met, and it leads us to attitudes that are demanding and entitled or, or at worst, blame-shifting, uh, or else uh, it, we, we deal with feeding desires that should rather be put to death in the first place. And so, so if the root of your problem is a sinful desire masquerading itself as, as innocent or even a noble need, uh, then feeding that need will only make the problem worse. Again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to eat. But eating on the terms of your, the ones that you set are going to be a problem when it comes in conflict with the terms that God has set. And so, so even if you feed it with, with something basically good, like, like a healthy relationship, it, it may amount to nothing more than just man-avoiding and, and greedy, greedily gobble, gobbling up something otherwise, that's a, something otherwise like a good gift from God where really it's not even from God at all. And so, so in their greed, the Israelites in the wilderness put their own desires at the center of the universe, and they demanded that God and Moses in the wilderness revolve around them. Okay? Now, this could be right here in this country that we live in, a wilderness as it is. That we come in with these expectations, that God would let the world revolve around us. And I think... Uh, such boundless desire can never be satisfied on human terms, and it was never meant to be. That, that only God gets to set the terms. And so so brings us to the second observation that uh, about God's terms. So, so the question is, was this red tape, and, and was all this policy about gathering only a day's worth at a time and resting on the seventh day, was, was this... Um, uh, was this something about God telling us or God providing for us. And, and I think this was, was God making the daily, uh, what this, I'm sorry, I'm completely blanking on my own notes here. Uh, this, was, this was God making this daily gathering of provision a part of his relationship with his people. Okay? This wasn't about restriction. This wasn't about, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in a corner and I'm going to limit your freedom. What this is, this whole scene, is about God saying, I want you to learn something incredible about how I'm caring for you. 
I want you to understand that I am a personal God. And as I make a promise to these people, and I want you saying, I want you to remember me as often as you get hungry. I want you to know that I provide for your daily bread rather than just leaving a note on the counter saying, hey, kids, there's a lifetime supply of frozen pizzas in the freezer. Have at it. He says, I want you to come in every single day and know where this came from. Every day. And then on the seventh day, I just want you to to rest in that. I want you to respond to that. He invited them to dine with him any time they were hungry. And what was his, what did he do? He provided so much that they were full. But the Israelites would have preferred this, this like vending machine of manna to guarantee them this, this perpetual satisfaction and uh, one that doesn't require them to acknowledge God, one that doesn't uh, require them to even trust God. And they acted as if he didn't even exist in the wilderness. In fact, they, their argument is against Moses and Aaron, remember? He said, this is y'all's fault that they were out in the wilderness and were without food. And if God did exist, he did so, at least in their minds, only for the purpose to meet their needs, this all-consuming center of their own thoughts. And so, so, so Moses has it right in verse 8 when he says, he says, listen, your grumbling isn't really against me. I can't, I can't make the food for you. Your grumbling is really against the Lord. Their grumbling accused God of being a bad God. So the question becomes, in our grumbling, what is it saying? What are we accusing God of being? And we, we live moment by moment, um, word and deed before the face of God. So, so we take ourselves to this fork in the road. Either we will reach for God's gift to his glory and to our joy, or like the Israelites in these verses, we will grasp in greedy rebellion against God. That's what this is. This is rebellion against God. So, so let's be honest that, that the Israelites' grumbling was attended uh, with, with demanding and hoarding and, and threatening to turn back to Egypt, right? Accusing God of ill uh, intent toward them and gratitude for his provision and, and this refusal of the terms of God's blessing, it was, there's no better way to put it. It was an all-out temper tantrum. And it's easy to see the temper tantrum in the immature, but it's more difficult to see it in the mature. But nonetheless, we all have these temper tantrums. And so so here's our warning that I think is laid out in these pages, that that it would be all too easy to rest in our our self-assured dignity and think, well, there's no way I would throw a fit and accuse God of being like that. There's no way. But, but keep in mind that their demands probably seemed as reasonable in their own eyes as yours seems to you. That, that our anger and our anxiety in moments similar to these ones um, are just indications that we share with the Israelites a reflection of, of a heart that's not content or trusting in the goodness and the care of of God. That that, that he's not the one with anything to prove because he's never been untruthful to his word. Like, Like, I would encourage us to look as we read the Bible, tell me a moment that God was not truthful in it. In fact, let's let's go away from the entirety of the word. Let's go just with the Exodus. And let's look at every single time God tells his people something, if he doesn't always complete that task, if he doesn't always fulfill that promise, even if he's not performing up to to their or our hidden or, or unreasonable expectations. Have you ever placed an unreasonable expectation on God? It's funny because when he doesn't meet it, you know what happens? We throw a temper tantrum. And we get irritated with him. We believe he's being unkind and he's being unloving. Not realizing that there is not a moment in your life that God doesn't come in and say, this is what is best for you. 
this provision is all that you need. Lord, well, it's not enough. It doesn't feel like enough as I weigh it in my life. And God's like, no, 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 no. It's all you need, I'm telling you. So we can trust them or we can decide to try to hoard. Now, the beautiful part of the Israelites is God did not allow them to set the terms of the relationship. God did not. No matter how much they complained, no matter what the fit they threw, God never gives them the reins. And you want to know why? Because he knows that when he gives the reins, he no longer gets to be God. And he knows that when they get the reins, they will run themselves off of a cliff. Every single time. So let's start wrapping this up. So, so each week we've, we've kind of talked about this scene in Exodus, and then we've said, okay, what does Jesus bring us that's better? Uh, and so, so as we bring this to closing, I want us to look um, at this scene. You don't have to turn there. In John 6, uh, where Jesus is, is moving. And so the setting is this, that thousands have seen and heard Jesus killed the sick. And, and so they followed him one day, and, and they see more miracles. And as the day wore on, uh, the crowd becomes hungry, but, but there wasn't enough food to feed them, and there wasn't enough money to buy food for them. And, and Jesus does this incredible thing that I'm sure if you've spent any time in the church, you've been in this scene, that, that Jesus takes um, five loaves of bread, and he takes two fish uh, from a boy's lunch, uh, and he feeds the crowd with baskets full to spare. And, and so and what we learn is that Jesus' intention in this miracle was to show that, uh, that, that he is the source of eternal life. But, but when the crowd followed him onto the next place, the, the in, their intention was simply to get more food. Like, hey, remember that trick you did with the food thing? Let's do that again. And they knew that, that Moses provided bread in the wilderness, or they accredited Moses to providing bread in the wilderness. And so, so if Jesus really is a prophet like Moses, they reason that he should be able to perform uh, and to provide at least as much as Moses did whenever they wanted him to. And, and so, so knowing that they had missed the point of this miracle, Jesus says these words. He says, he says Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life with the Son of Man, that the Son of Man will give to you. And then he reminds them of something really important. He says that he says that it wasn't Moses. He goes, guys, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. It was your heavenly Father. And then he brings this all to light and he declares, I am the bread of life. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. He says, you will have your bread, and you will have it to the full. You will have your thirst satisfied. And the tragedy of, of John 6 uh, is that some people are coming to Jesus only for the bread and nothing more. And, and in fact, it'll say, I think ironically, in the 66th verse of chapter 6, that many of his disciples turned away because his teaching was too harsh, and they no longer walked with him. And out of that comes this, this really beautiful scene where, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, says to them, are, are you going to? And Peter looks and he goes, where, where would we go? You're the Christ. You are who you say you are. So, so the provision in the wilderness was not about food, but about understanding God's great care for his people. The feeding in John 6 is not about the food, but understanding how all hunger and how all thirst satisfied in Christ Jesus. And so where we sit today is working through where in our lives are we demanding manna from heaven? And where is God providing it? But we're saying that's not enough. We need more. That God is faithful to 
provide our daily bread, not because of our groaning, but because he is a good father and he is a truthful father and, and he is a near father. And, and I suppose a good, good question for us to ponder this week is simply, when I go to God for need, what's my motivation? Do I want him or do I just want stuff? Is he gladly provides the stuff? But every provision that he grants us is his heart opening to us to say, you can trust me. You can trust me in every single circumstance, in the hard, in the easy, in the dark, in the light. You can trust me. And I think as we ask that question, we can ask, okay, am I demanding him to do life on my terms? I come to him not because of what he can do, but because of who he is. It's hard because sometimes you have to show him sometimes that line is not as, as wide as we want it to be. Sometimes that line is this week is to love God by as we wrap up make a couple things left in the wilderness by ourselves that you walk with us each and every moment. And Father, I pray we would be a people who walk in the light of your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Come awaken your people. Come awaken your